Well, okay, get, get you guys kind of motivated this morning. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our walk to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to them to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. We'll be starting in verse 13. If you don't have your Bibles, you can go ahead and log on to Facebook. We're going to have the scripture there as well. And while you're there, go ahead and check in and let someone know uh, what God is doing here at Impact City Church on our Facebook page as well. By the way, we are five likes away from 500 on the Facebook page. Five likes. I'm pretty sure that between this room with our friends and family, we can get five people between all of us here to like the Facebook page. And so I would like to see that hit 500 before the end of tonight. So if you guys can do whatever you can just to get on there, like it, share it, whatever, that would just make my day. Y'all think you guys are up for that challenge? Okay, you guys are still asleep. We have to stand up and do the exercise again. If you're gonna be, all right? Interaction is good here in church. Well, today uh, we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus will expose the deepest desires of our heart. The fact that Jesus Christ, this thought, this notion that Jesus Christ will expose what is deep inside of our hearts. He will actually expose and let everyone know what is deep inside our hearts and even let us know what is truly in our hearts. It's the idea that there is someone out there who knows everything about you. If you hear this statement that Jesus will expose the deepest desires of your heart, Jesus' word exposes the deepest desires of our heart. If you hear that statement and you're honest in church and you should be, that should scare you a little bit. That should scare you a little bit that there is someone out there who knows everything about you even better than yourself. The fact that Jesus knows your heart even better than we know our heart at times. The idea that there's someone out there who knows everything about you, even the things you try to hide in the deepest, darkest parts of your heart, the things that, that you try to hold back from people, that idea that someone knows about that should frighten us a little bit. And Jesus does this for us. He does this to us. And it scares us because we all tend to kind of hide from uh, people and we kind of tend to hide from time to time from various forms of fashions. We try to hide those desires in our hearts. We try to withdraw and, and make sure that no one knows that because if someone knows that, we're going to be known fully. If someone knows the deepest desires of our hearts, then we're exposed. We keep things to ourselves because we're afraid of being found out, ashamed, and rejected. Now, the way Jesus does this is similar to the way a best friend does this for us. Your BFF. How many of y'all have BFFs? Your best, best friend forever. You know, BFF for life. Or your spouse or someone that you're really close to. Just like Jesus, your best friends here on earth are the other ones who should know you inside and out. They should know everything about you, but they only have to work a little bit harder to get to that point than Jesus does. You see, the best friends in your life are those who force you to go past the surface of the conversation and go deep inside what is actually going on at the moment with you. These are the people who ask you penetrating questions to uncomfortable answers that you might not want to talk about or even bring up in casual conversation. These are the friends that actually go deep and peel back the layers of selfishness and pride and just, you know, conceit that, uh, that you use to cover up your mistakes and your, your failures. These are the people who can get to that inner part of your heart. They're the ones that love you so much to not let you continue brewing what is brewing inside your heart without actually, you know, revealing it and bringing it up to the surface. You don't always like these friends in the moments, but in the long run, you love them. These are the friends that make you so mad from day to day. But in the long run, you say, I'm so thankful that they were there. 
because they actually stood by me at my dirtiest, ugliest moment in my life. Because like Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of the enemy. Best friends force you to reveal your heart. And as corny as it sounds, you know, your best friends force you to review, uh, expose your heart. But as corny as it sounds, Jesus should be your bestest friend on earth. Jesus should be your best friend. I am a friend of God. You know that song? I am a friend. Okay, you guys don't know that song. Anyway. So Jesus should be your best friend. Because deep down inside, he knows you like no one else does. He sees past the smoke screens and defense mechanisms that you put on your heart to kind of shield everyone out. He eventually will push you into places that you don't want to go, and he'll ask you questions that you may not want to hear the answers to. Even to the point when you think your issue is about other people or their circumstances, Jesus will reveal that the real primary issue is between you and God. And that's something not many of us want to hear. That's how much he knows our hearts, is that he exposes that understanding, and he gives it to us for a reason. He exposes our hearts for a reason. See, it's important to remember that Jesus exposes our hearts not to shame us, but to save us. Say that with me. Jesus exposes our hearts not to shame us, but to save us. And if we're honest with us, you don't have to say that part. And he's honest with us, and he shows us that we've made a secondary issue in our life into a primary issue of our life. He tells us that that some of the things we worry about, some of the things that we hold first and dear in our life, that we take those things, and instead of that being what it really is, which is a secondary issue, that we make it into the primary issue of our life. And he tells us this, and he exposes this, and that's exactly what we're fixing to see here in Mark chapter 12. So if you're there, please turn to your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Verse 13 starts off like this. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but teach, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay to them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and in, in inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then Jesus said to him, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The religious leaders are challenging Jesus yet again. If you remember, just like, literally, it's a chapter before this, or a few, few verses before this, the chief priests came up to Jesus and they were challenging him on his authority in the temple. And now we have the Herodians and the Pharisees, other religious leaders in the nation, coming up and challenging him again. And they're challenging Jesus and they're asking him a loaded question right here, a question that is a dangerous question to answer. And the reason they're doing this is because they want to discredit his ministry. They want to end Jesus' ministry. But why? Why would they want to do that to Jesus? He's a cool guy. I like Jesus. He's my homeboy. Why would you want to mess around with Jesus, right? The Herodians and the Pharisees wanted to do this because their status quo and the power that they held was being threatened by this, this guy from Nazareth. 
See, the Pharisees and the Herodians were two groups of people who couldn't have less in common than anyone else. They were like Tom and Jerry. They did not like each other at all. Nothing about the Herodians and the Pharisees would ever link up except for Jesus. And the reason is, on the one hand, the Pharisees were opposed to this Roman occupation and taxes. So whenever the Romans came in and they were opposing and they were uh, oppressing the Jewish people and they came in and took over, they had to pay taxes to the Romans. And so the Pharisees were against this Roman occupation and taxes. They didn't like it. They viewed it as someone else coming and ruling over their people and they were not going to be ruled over. While, on the other hand, the Herodian group of people, the Herodians liked the Roman occupation because their taxes and political uh, policies helped them become better people. So the Herodians were for the Romans. The Pharisees were against the Romans. They were all about it for twisted reasons. But yet this one guy from Nazareth causes the Herodians and the Pharisees to come together. Because they wanted to come together and make Jesus disappear. Now this isn't the first time this happened. This isn't the first time this happened. In fact, this has been going on for about a year or so. Back in chapter 3 of Mark, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Uh, Jesus had came up and he had ticked off the Pharisees. And the Pharisees said this, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. And they talked about how to destroy him. That was all the way back in chapter 3 of Mark. So from chapter 3 all the way back over here to chapter 12, you know that they've been plotting against Jesus. This is the, there's only two times where the Herodians are ever mentioned in the Gospel of Mark and they're right here. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees are plotting against Jesus. All the, way, all the way back from chapter 3, nine chapters later to chapter 12. And now finally, here in chapter 12, they finally have him. They have him cornered. They have him here in the city and they approach him. They've been, they've been contemplating what to say. And they were like, man, what do we do? How do we get Jesus out of here? And the, that moment had came where he finally came back to the city and the Herodians and the Pharisees were there like, man, we got the perfect question that's going to just end his ministry. There was no right answer. Darn if he does, darn if he doesn't. If we, he just answers this question any which way he does, he is going to be ruined. What was the question that they asked him? Let's go back and read it again. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. This is verse 13. To trap him and talk. See, they were there. The purpose of them being there was literally just to trap him. They were going to trick him. Verse 14. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by the appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So that's kind of the first part. They're trying to butter him up. And it says, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? The Herodians start off by falsely flattering Jesus. Have any of us ever done that? Where you go up to someone like, man, that's a nice shirt you got on today. Oh, you, your hair looks so perfect, girl. And then you hit them with like the real thing you're trying to say. Your hair looks so good, girl. By the way, the other night when you borrowed my hair dryer, you never give it back. You know, or, you know, by the way, when you do this, or you, don't, you know, you, you flatter someone with something nice, you say something sweet to them, and then you punch them with something hard. You know, that's what we do. And that's exactly what they're doing to Jesus. They're trying to catch him off guard. They come up, they start flattering him. Oh, oh, teacher, you teach the way of God, and you're like the honey badger. You just don't care about people. And if you ever seen that video, that's a bad video. You know, you just don't care about what people say about you. You are so good, Jesus. You are so awesome. Teach us. Tell us something. So right away, Jesus knows something's up here. Right away, Jesus knows something. And they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the tax that they're talking about here, the tax they're talking about is this annual poll tax that the Romans had put on the Jews so that they can pay it back to Julius Caesar, to Caesar. 
And then this tax wasn't for the people, though. Like, this isn't like Corpus Christi tax. Well, maybe it is kind of like Corpus Christi tax. This isn't like the tax that, that goes to the city streets to fix them. Well, it's really not like that tax. Our streets are terrible. This isn't like the tax that, that goes to build, build awesome new parks so we can compete with Austin, Texas, and San Antonio for having great city parks. This isn't like the, the type of tax that goes to helping the schools get better and, and education. This isn't that type of tax. No, this tax went straight to the bank account of Caesar back in, the, in Rome. It went straight to his bank account. It was just a tax to get him more rich and more powerful and more money. And because of that, none of the Jews liked it. It was outright robbery. So Jesus was in a bad situation because if he said yes to the tax, if he said the tax is lawful, it means pay the tax, then there was no one in the land that was going to follow Jesus because they were going to be so upset with Jesus saying that, oh, he's siding with the Romans. Oh, this everything he has done has been a trick to get us to side more with the Romans. We're not going to follow Jesus no more. So if he says that, hey, pay the tax, and everyone in, in all the Jewish people in the land are going to turn against Jesus, and his ministry will be over. But if Jesus says that the tax was unlawful, as if it was not right to do, and say don't pay the tax, then uh, it would actually make Rome get so upset with Jesus, because everyone followed Jesus, everyone listened to Jesus. So if Jesus said, don't pay the tax, no one would pay the tax. Rome would get upset. Rome would send an army, and Rome was the most powerful nation at the time. And this big army and this big nation would be all looking for Jesus and would probably kill him and destroy him right then and there. And so any way that he goes about this, he is going to respond the wrong way. But Jesus doesn't ever respond the wrong way, does he? Jesus, knowing that their question was a loaded question, responds in a way that just blows them out of the water. And let's look at the way Jesus responds. It says, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. That's a coin. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him one and they said to him, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this? Whose picture is on this coin, man? Like, look at this. Whose name is on it? Whose picture is on it? And they said to him, Caesar. And Jesus said to him, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. What a response. Totally out of left field. Totally threw a curveball at him. Jesus knew the question wasn't genuine, and he saw what they were trying to do. So he responds by shifting the issue back around and puts it back on them. He says, it's not about this. It's about you. By Jesus asking him whose likeness and description was on the coin, he was saying that that person owns that coin. So like whenever you look and you look at the money, we have the presidents on the money. Who owns the money? It's not your money. It's the government's money. And they just loan it to us so we can live and do things. So that's the same way it was back in Rome. Caesar had all the money. He loaned it out. He traded. He bartered. He was a, he was a businessman. And so all of this money was Caesar's. And Jesus said basically, if Caesar's image is on the coin, therefore do with it as, as, as he wants to do. It's his coin. He owns it. Give it back to him. Now, while that might sound like Jesus is being a little bit of a smart aleck, in reality, he's setting them up for this other part of the response. Then he says, Jesus wanted them to, uh, he wanted them to have this train of thought as he said the next line. He wanted them to understand, hey, if, it's, if his picture is on the coin, then that's his. His image is on the coin. That is his. So give it back to him. Then he says, give to God the things that are God's, meaning you're the image of God. You were my image bearers. You belong to me, so give yourself back to me. Jesus is saying in a simple concept, Caesar can have what he wants. 
he can have whatever he wants. It didn't matter to Jesus. It really didn't because Jesus also wanted us to be back to him. He wanted us back to him. He wanted to hear uh, that the, the, the Herodians, the Pharisees, were, turning, were going to turn their hearts back over to him because they were made in the image of God. Jesus answered a loaded question with a loaded answer, changed it around on them, and totally brought it back to them. I like how Jesus didn't even try to address the role of government. He didn't even try to talk about the taxes. He totally sidestepped the issue and went straight to their hearts. And the point of this is simple. The submission and governing authorities has nothing to do with submitting and governing to God. So when we submit and govern to our authorities, that's a separate issue. The real issue is, are you submitting and being uh, you know, governed by God? Are you surrendering your life to Jesus? And these are two different issues, and one is way more important than the other. One is secondary, one is primary. Just like in our lives, we have the primary thing that we should be doing, and we have a lot of secondary things that we should be doing after we do the primary thing. You see, they had some secondary issues, taxes and government, but those aren't primary issues to them. Those things are secondary to the fact that the primary issue is their resistance to God by trying to remove and destroy the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus totally exposed that in them. Jesus hits them with a twist and it blows them away. Check it out in verse 17. It says, Jesus said to them, Render to the things that are Caesar's, and to God render the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. They were so astounded by Jesus' answer. He outsmarted them. He totally went cool on them and totally gave them this answer that totally blew them out of the water. Jesus' words, the word of God exposes our hearts the way that the word of God, his words exposed their hearts at that moment. God's word will expose the intentions of our hearts, taking secondary issues that we've made primary and showing us what is actually the primary issue, which is our resistance to God at most times. The writer of Hebrews puts it clearly like this in Hebrews 4.12. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints and of the marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from this, from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. God's word cuts through, the, through our defenses, telling us what is really true in our hearts. God's word sidesteps our excuses undermines our sensibilities and tells us what we want what we don't want to hear about ourselves god's word lays it bare he causes us to become bare and naked and exposed before god as utterly dependent creatures on him god's word makes it to where you're no longer in charge of your life if you're following god god's word exposes our sinfulness god's word exposes our hearts This is what the word of God does for us. And when these men heard the words of Jesus, of their intentions of the heart, they were exposed and they were in awe and marveled at him. How did he know that? Now Jesus no longer is here to speak audibly to us. These men heard from Jesus face to face, word to word. But he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to inspire the writings of the scriptures. So the way we hear from Jesus is through prayer, through the Holy Spirit 
through community, through the church, the body of Christ, he was around him, that speaking through people within the church and through also this word, the Bible, the word of God, this book right here. And if you're reading this book, Jesus is speaking to you. A lot of people say, I haven't heard from Jesus. I've been praying. I don't hear. Well, are you reading his Bible? Are you reading the scriptures? No. Well, then you're never going to hear from him, idiot. I mean, come on. You got to think about this here. How are you going to hear from someone if you never talk to them? So the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life. He's going to do these things. He's going to pierce your heart with his word. He's going to speak to you every time you open up his Bible, his word, and his scriptures. And he's going to convict you and make you see the wickedness that hides inside your heart. It's going to do that to you. When we read the scriptures and we read the gospel, it is oftentimes bad news before it is good news. The gospel to us should make you be fearful and terrified. When we read the gospel, the fact that there is someone who has come to die for you, before that, you found out that you were utterly sinful and hopeless. That the sins that we have, we can never atone for. And so whenever we read the gospel, we find that we are hopeless. But if we continue reading the gospel, we find out that there is a Savior who came in and intervened for that hopelessness and gave us life and gave us love, and gave us grace, and died for us. That is the awesomeness of the gospel. But before that, the gospel, the word of God, exposes our sinfulness. Now Jesus, like I said, no longer do that, but he does this not to shame us. Remember, he does this to love us. He exposes our hearts not to shame us, but he does it to love us. Jesus knows everything about us. The shameful things you've done, the ones that no one else even knows about. Every evil thought, every perverse word that came out of your mouth, every wickedness that is inside your heart, every lustful desire you've ever had about someone else is in your heart, and Jesus knows about it. There is no place that you can go that God will not find you and expose you. Not only does he know all of them, not only does he know all of our sins and all of the things in our hearts, not only does he know it, he is also the one that is most offended by the things that we do. You think you get upset whenever you see your, your family or your friends do something stupid and sinful. How do you think Jesus feels? That is his creation. That is his child. That is his baby doing something wrong. Whenever we sin, you think we upset people here on earth? We really upset Jesus. We really upset God when we do our sins. And he knows every single thing we do. And so God knows all these things, and he is often uh, just offended and wrong by all of these things. He knows everything about us. And the most important thing is that he is also the one who is wronged the most by those things. Because it's him, though, if it was anyone else that we were exposing our hearts to, we would have no hope. Anyone else would take all of our junk and all the wickedness and use it to blackmail us, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't take our sins and say, okay, because you're sinful and because I I got you in this corner, now I want you to do this. No, he doesn't do that for us. Remember that he exposes the intentions of our hearts not to shame us, but to save us. He enables us to be vulnerable before God with no fear or punishment or disapproval. He He took that to the cross. His gospel makes us makes it possible for the Word of God to cut our hearts and expose our hearts, but not to crush our hearts. The problem is is that we often crush ourselves with condemnation. The problem is this, is that whenever our hearts are exposed and our sin is exposed, God doesn't condemn us. God doesn't look at us. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, oh, you terrible, terrible person. 
You ugly, awful creation. How could you do that? How could you get pregnant at the age of 16? How could you sleep with someone else? How could you get drunk? How could you have accidentally murdered someone when you were in a drunken rage? How could you take those pills? How could you do that? You ugly, terrible person. Get away from me. Jesus doesn't say that. But we do it to ourselves. We often condemn and crush ourselves when our sin is exposed. That's why we try to hide it. We tend to hate ourselves. When people find out that we're addicts, or when people find out that we have sinful desires, when people find out we cheat on our wives or our husbands, people tend to, we try to condemn ourselves. We start to, to think, man, maybe if, I, if, maybe if I just work harder at being good, or maybe if I just be better, if I, just, if, I, if I can just do things better, I would be in better stance with this person. Or maybe, you know, you start wishing, I wish I was different. I wish I wasn't born like this. Or why did my father have to do this to me? Why did this have to be like this? If it wasn't for this person, then I would act like this. And then you start making excuses and condemning yourself. And we start having this all about us mindset. That our sin ultimately is us being selfish. And even after our sin, we still don't get it. And we're still selfish when all we do is talk about our sin. That's not right. The point of God revealing our sin is not for us to focus on ourselves, but it should be a springboard, a launching point for us to marvel at Jesus just like the way the Pharisees and the Herodians did when he exposed their heart. When Jesus exposes our hearts, it's not for us to feel condemned. It's not for us to feel uh, condemnation and put down upon ourselves. It should reveal to us the fact that Jesus is ultimately better than us, and we should marvel at the fact that he is ultimately better than us, and we should worship him. It should be a springboard board for us to do that. The fact that he exposes our hearts is not to shame us. It's to what? Oh, you guys are still asleep? The fact that Jesus exposes our hearts is not to shame us. It's to... Okay. This is why we cannot shy away from his word, his community, and all of the, the prayer life, the Christian life. We cannot shy away from it because we're scared of being exposed. Whenever we screw up in our life, the right thing to do is not go hide. Leave the church. Get away from your friends. Don't answer your phone for three days. It's not the right thing to do. The right thing for you to do should be to run to the church. Run to your friends. Go to your missional city group. Go to the men in your, your group uh, who are over you, who want to love on you. Women, go to the women of your group who need prayer, who need to have a hug. Get your chocolate and your ice cream on and talk about something. Like, that is where we need to be. We have got to stay engaged in the word of God and allow it to pierce our hearts if we want to continue to marvel at Jesus. If we want to continue to worship Christ. We have to remember that we have to be exposed. You will not worship Christ if you think you are better than Christ. Amen? You will not worship Christ if you think you are better than Christ. And many times in our life, in the seasons of our life, we get like that. We start thinking we're better than Christ. And we stop coming to church. We start putting things before him. We make secondary issues our primary issues. And we walk away. And you know when we come back to church... It's when God exposes our hearts and we realize that we're not as good as we think we are. Scripture says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4, 18. There's nothing to be afraid of. When we go before God and we confess to him, we can be honest with him, there is nothing to be afraid of. There is love, there is grace, there is perfect love that is going to cast out that fear. Now you might receive a stern rebuke from him, 
I'm not going to lie. You might go to the guy and be like, I screwed up. I really did this. He might give you a stern rebuke. He might allow your sin to, uh, to make you go through something. Listen, if you're going through problems and hassle, it's not that God has turned his hand away from you. It's that God is molding you through those problems. There are many preachers that will say that, that unless everything is good in your life, then God is not in your life. If God is in your life and everything is going to be good and everything is going to work out, that is a lie. You know that God is in your life is because you're reading his word. You know that God is in your life because you're going and you're molding and you're going through a process. You know that God is in your life is because you see him working in it. And it's a powerful working. It's not a blessing upon blessing, health, wealth, success. That is crap. God is working in your life when you have that, but you, he also allows you to see the sinfulness in your heart. Praise God that he allows us to see the sinfulness in our hearts. Other times he'll hit you with a stern rebuke, but other times he'll hit you with tender encouragement. But all of it is done in love. This is the power of the gospel. It allows us to be vulnerable with one another. Not only do we get to become deeply known by God, but also by our siblings and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be vulnerable with each other without fear, without rejection, without punishment from each other, because all, we have all tasted the sweet taste to be received by Jesus. So when we say we can be open with each other in church without judging the other people, it's because we ourselves one time needed to be judged by God. We ourselves need to be received and forgiven. So whenever you look at someone in church, you're like, I can't believe that guy does that. That guy's a moron. I can't believe that guy is doing this. He's so bad. He's so sinful. Shame on you because that was you before you were a Christian. You're like, I never did that. Oh, but you did everything else that was probably just as bad. When we realize that we are all sinful in nature and we all tend to fall down, we cannot, we cannot just stand there and cast judgment because we ourselves need to have judgment as well. We need forgiveness the way that they need forgiveness. Not all of us are exempt, though. We need to be honest with someone and tell them what is going on in our life. Sin cannot grow where there is light. When we expose ourselves, sin cannot grow there. And so we have to be doing that. We have to be in community. We have to be doing that. Now, in closing, allow me to uh, challenge us all with this. What secondary issue have you made the primary issue in your life before God? What thing in your life do you continue to do, do you continue to come back to that you put before God every day? What is it that you hold higher than God in your life? What is it that you continue to live a life to you and you continue to be bound to, captured by, and entangled with that you continue to allow it to become the primary issue above God? What is it that you're doing? And if it is, whatever you figure it out, May we just repent of that. Whatever it is, may you know that God's word says that he'll get to that. But the first thing we need to do is give ourselves up to God. Surrender everything and allow him to expose that sin in our lives. And feel comfortable with community. And feel comfortable with church. And feel comfortable being open and honest with people. Church, if we're going to be a church that welcomes the broken into this room, we have to be a church that's willing to accept the fact that we too were and still are broken. Let's pray.